0: That's audible.com/wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500 500. This is Ion Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the, the US. U.S.
1: Each week, we focus on their stories
0: powered by ConnectingVets.com. This this is CBS Ion on Veterans Ion Veterans. Veterans
2: Welcome to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs This hour we'll keep our conversation going about race and racism in America with a talented veteran musician and producer known to most as the Marine rapper
3: People are angry that's happening because We are getting swept underneath the rug as a black community again when you say all lives matter as a response to black lives matter.
2: And we'll hear about the new fiction thriller High Treason by Sean McFate, a veteran, an author, and a former top secret government contractor whose real life was a lot like a CIA action adventure.
1: I did stuff that the CIA used to do or sometimes do. Special operations forces sometimes do. Um, But, you know, increasingly our government and other governments like Russia and others are outsourcing a lot of these super politically risky missions, right?
2: Now we'll start off this hour with advice for the veteran looking for a new career. And I recently spoke with Brian Collins from the Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University about the program Onward to Opportunity.
4: I was, uh, I was U.S. Army. Um, I was a uh, 13 Fox, which is a, a forward observer, working with the, basically the infantry and looking for those targets uh, for the artillery to, uh, to shoot uh, when needed. Um, I had three combat tours, uh, two to Afghanistan and one to Iraq. Uh, spent six years in Hawaii, been to Fort Bliss, Texas, and then uh, I finished up in uh, Fort Drum, New York.
2: Now let's talk transition because you've got a really infantry focused kind of rate, you know, a very, a very combat oriented rate. Share with me what your transition was like.
4: First year, you're, you're right. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, in a combat arms MOS you know, job like that. Uh, there's not a lot of things that translate into the civilian, the civilian sector. Um, and at the time that, uh, I was looking at getting out, I, I had initially planned on, uh, I was just over 20 years at the time. And, uh, my family and I had, had sat down and, and we looked at, uh, you know, doing another year or two, uh, give us an opportunity to pay some bills, uh, decrease the debt. And, and for me to start that networking process that normally comes when, uh, when you begin that transition process, my story though, is, uh, I received a call one day that, uh, I was being looked at for medical retirement, which through, to be honest, through my plan in uh, in complete disarray. As you know, uh, you know, being a veteran, when you go to retire, you usually have that, you know, twelve to twenty-four month time frame that you can fall into, and basically have an idea of when when you're going to get out, um, plan for, you know, what you're going to do when you get out, where you're going to go, all those types of things. In my situation, unfortunately, I didn't have any of that. Uh, the scariest thing about it, I think, was the fact that with a family, I didn't have any idea where that next paycheck was going to come from, you know. Uh, I joined the Army at 18 years old, so all I knew, literally half my, my adult life, uh, was the Army. I actually did find out uh, a couple months later, it was, uh, it was October, I received my, uh, my retirement orders, and I was given three weeks um, to basically out-process the Army um, and out-process Fort Drum, and I was going to be on my own. Uh, I had a, My oldest son was uh, getting ready to be a junior in high school. The holidays are coming up, and I'm staring this uh, uh, what's next, you know, right there.
2: Faced with all that, uh, you make a very sound decision to, you know, stick it out, to stay for the kids' sake Mm -hmm. and and, and keep the family structure together. But you decided to kind of invest in yourself, and that's where I wanted to kind of hear from you about your experience with this program. Because I know, again, we talk about the whole Onward to Opportunity program and we talk about all these different training things that are available to veterans. But here you are, you know, just, just outside Fort Drum, and you've really got a fast turnaround time. Like, you've got no time to wait. What was your experience with Onward to Opportunity like?
4: Uh, I actually found out about the program from a friend of mine. Um, we were going through um, the tra- basically all the different transition courses, and I was trying to get a, find that one um, that that seemed to offer the most uh, I was still working on my college degree at the time and when I went to the Onward to Opportunity program and they, they talked about um, the certifications that you could get um, through their program and their nationally recognized certifications with, through these these governing bodies um, and that was that was one of the big things is I was like hey I could you know invest my time right now um, come out of here hopefully a certification and that would help you know boost my resume um, and potential, uh, jobs. Um, the other thing about the program was is as I did a little bit more research on it too, is I didn't under, I didn't realize um, that Syracuse university had set up um, an institute just to help with veterans and military families. Um, and uh, part of that was you can collaborate with, uh, an organization called higher heroes USA, um, that will also sit down with you as, uh, and help with that resume and perspective. Perspective job search. Um, So the Onward Opportunity Program didn't just um, help me with that. It it gave me other opportunities as well. Like, for example, um, they held a a bunch of networking events that I was able to go to. And quite frankly, it helped me get used to talking to, I hate to use the term, civilian recruiters but that's that's what it was when as you know with military we we have a specific lingo that we that we talk and how we how we come across so getting out there and and meeting with um these recruiters talking to them having them look at my resume provide feedback to me uh that that part of the program was something i wasn't anticipating to be honest with you phil
2: Right on. Yeah. And I'm really familiar with that because you're right. There is that kind of, I don't know, disciplined nature to a military person and they're used to greeting somebody with rank and yes, ma'am and no, ma'am. And when you're out there just shucking and jiving, looking for a job, man, you got to get that person to like you. It's okay to put on a little bit of, you know, a little more personality. Lay it on a little thick. Be you. You know what I'm saying? Like, they have to like you. You have to rise above the other resumes in the stack and make a personal connection. And the military, that's not part of the deal. (laughs) You don't need the personal connection with your CEO. Let's talk specifically onward to opportunity. What the hell did you study? I hear the word program and I hear the word soft skills and technical abilities and training and certifications break it down for me dude what kind of job did you study for what kind of skills did you get and what do you do now
4: i actually when i signed up for the program i went with the uh the human resources uh course okay uh i figured uh since i was i was at that time i was an e8 so i had done some uh human resources managing personnel you know awards uh evaluation reports type of stuff like that so i figured um that each, uh, human resource would be best, you know, for me. Plus, along the fact that I still wanted to be able to help, um, and I felt that um, that would be a very good way for me to help people. So what led me to to my current job is I'm actually uh, one of the advisors for the Onwards Opportunity Program uh, at the Institute for Veterans and Military Families. So, in that role now. I can help with my experience of what I went through with the transition process and share it with these with the military spouses, veterans, and transitioning service members. Um, help them get through that um, by telling my story and that, you know, hey, everything can work itself out. Just be patient, have a good plan. Right. Um, take advantage of the programs that are out there.
2: Uh, talk to me about the other opportunities I can find through Onward to Opportunity. Of course,
4: HR is just one of the, the programs that we offer. Um, we also uh, have different levels for your project management, which is your certified assistant project managers, or if you you know do want to be a project manager. And we're keeping growing on the IT side uh, specifically. Um, we have everything from uh, you know your your lower level CompTIA certifications, such as A+, Security+, up to some of the more advanced ones um, like your your CISSPs which is all in the cybersecurity realm. We also have networking uh, courses. Uh, We've worked, we've partnered up with uh, AWS and Google um, as Google offers a uh, a certificate program. The F as a whole too, if there's anybody out there that's looking for, uh, you know, to start a small business when they get out uh, at the Institute, um, we do have uh, uh, people that work on that side as well to help uh, navigate the process of, of trying to start your own business.
2: Now to learn more about the Onward to Opportunity program and everything going on at the Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University, you can check them out at ivmf.syracuse.edu. And we'll be back with more after this. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And we're going to continue now our conversation about racial inequality in America. And our next guest goes by the Marine Rapper. But as you're about to hear, what he normally puts into song, Raymond Lott was able to channel a lot of important stuff into our interview. What's going on, my friend Raymond Lott? How are you, buddy?
3: I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm glad to see a lot of change going on in this country. I'm glad to see a lot of awareness happening, and I'm just happy to be on the phone with you right now.
2: Oh, you got it, man. You know, we'll start right there by just saying I am surprised to hear the word happy being used because it has been such a tumultuous week, and then the couple weeks now since we've seen things that ignited a kind of a race revolution in our country, or at least a race reawakening. I want to know from you, how are you feeling about it now?
3: I'm happy that the awareness is happening, uh, but I'm not blind to the emotions that my community is feeling and that I'm feeling as a black man. Like I still, I, I, may, I may say I'm happy that awareness is happening, but that doesn't change the reality of me going into a store and the store owner thinks I'm going to steal something because I'm wearing a hood. That doesn't change the reality of somebody that isn't familiar with black people, like moving to the other side of the road because they think I may rob them or or they've heard things or they have this stereotype or stigma that black people may do this or that, or they're criminals or whatever stereotype that has been put out there negatively. It doesn't change that. So, I still feel strongly about the murder of George Floyd, that it was like wrong, especially coming from a military standpoint, knowing ROE's rules of engagement and uh, EOF's uh, escalation of force. I feel like he was detained improperly and he was arrested improperly, but I'm I'm hopeful and I am looking forward to the future that everybody is seeing now and they're saying like, oh, we don't have to be prejudice. We don't have to be racist. We don't have to stereotype. Everybody is the same and let's come together and let's have some unity in one accord. So that's how I'm feeling right now. I don't, I don't really have much anger because it's kind of like something I live every
2: day. And let's go there for a second. I read an incredibly powerful op-ed by basketball legend, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And he spoke of racism in America at the current state, like dust in the air. You know, you don't always see it but when the sunlight hits it, it illuminates it. And then you can see how many little specks of dust are floating around, how many little instances of racism are basically in your daily life. And you touched on a couple there, the way you feel when you go into a store, the way you have felt. Um, Tell me as a white guy, have I missed this this entire time? Have I missed the fact that there are everyday situations that have made you feel uncomfortable and they all emanate from people just misunderstanding and being if not intentionally racist, can I say accidentally racist?
3: I wouldn't say accidental racism, that's not right because I have have great you know white friends just like you. But what I would say is I feel like people have been blind to the racism. So there's a lot of people um, like you that don't look like me necessarily, like you grew up white and and you didn't do anything wrong. You did what you're supposed to do. You went to school, you got a good job and you you serve your country, you, you get out, you mind your own business. But because it's not your reality as a white man, you may not see my reality as a black man. So it's not your fault per se, but it is something that all Americans should know about specifically because a black issue in America is an American issue. So there's no accidental racism, but there are blind situations. So you could be blind to a situation like you don't know how much my heart starts beating when a cop pulls me over because I know the past of some cops, some bad cops that pulled over black people and killed them. You you may you may be like, oh, he's just pulling me over to, to make sure my, my papers are straight and I wasn't speeding. And so you're calm. You don't have any palpitations in your heart. I have a palpitation in my heart, even though my – papers are up to date, even though the car is mine, even though I have the pink slip, the cop pulling me over may say, Hey, where'd you get this car? Like a slick racist comment. Like I couldn't afford that car. You see what I'm saying? Like things like that would happen.
2: It breaks my heart to think that like, that's a conversation and you're not the first black guy to tell me that, but it breaks my heart that that's a conversation that is had in a black American household. Uh, let's talk about what most people do after this. We have a, we have a huge blow up And there was a huge movement for Black Lives Matter. And then it moves into All Lives Matter. And then everyone's like, well, blue lives matter too. Well, then it's like unicorn lives matter. Well, what about, you know, squirrel lives? And everybody starts saying that every life matters. What are we not getting? What are people not getting?
3: They're missing the root message. Because it's been convoluted with politics, racial ambiguity. The root message is that Black Lives Matter, like, you know, me and you, we know how it is being military. If one of our buddies goes down and his name's Smith and another buddy is fine and we're like, hey, Smith, lives matter right now. We need to fix Smith right now. He has a bullet wound. We don't go, well, well, all troops matter. We don't do that. We right. fix Smith. Right. We fix Smith right away, and then we, then we can move forward and be like, okay, cool. All troops matter at that point. But it's just like triage. It's like, I don't know why people don't get it. It's like, we have to keep on making all these examples that are relevant to each different group. So they understand if we're saying that America has a problem with this, we fix that issue. Then we move on to the rest of the American issues. We don't just water it down. So I feel that when people try to water down the message of, I'm saying my black life matters with all lives matter, I just feel like it's insensitive. It's continuing that be blind narrative. It's continuing that devaluing of the black community, the black culture, the black person. Um, And that's why there's anger. That's why there's rioting. That's why there's looting and rioting and all that specifically because people are angry. I don't agree with it, but that's happening because we are getting swept underneath the rug as a black community again when you say all Lives Matter as a response to
2: Black Lives Matter. Certainly, any conversation with Ray Lott needs to include his music. And as the Marine rapper, his song Star Spangled Banger gives us a glimpse at how being a black American veteran can often be an uncomfortable reality.
3: Star Spangled Banger, my AKA. Red, white, and blue is the flag I waved. USA made me the biggest gang. Star Spangled Banger, my AKA. Star Spangled Banger, my AKA. AKA. Represent USA every day.
2: I got to tell you, man, I listened to that song recently and, you know, listening to some of the lyrics, I'm like, you wrote that thing years ago and it is still in play today. Share with me first a line or two from that song that you think really has some serious connection to the stuff we're seeing these days?
3: Wow, it, it, it would be a hard pick, man. I just honestly don't know. I just feel like uh, the line where I say I represent USA every day. I'm a black man that represents USA every day, and I feel the pain of America every single day. I want all of us to come together, but still in some places every single day I'm looked at as lesser than. So that's why when I say represent USA every day, that may be one of the most powerful lines because it's so painful coming out of a black man's mouth. And that's how how I feel. I feel that way now. I feel like, hey, I'm standing up for injustice and I'm standing up for changing the police force and I'm standing up for black people joining the police force and and I'm standing up for black people joining the military, but I'm also standing up for the black community and police injustice. So it sends out a message, they're like, so what side are you on? So I feel like I'm in the middle still.
2: Now that's just a portion of an hour-long interview I did with Raymond Lott, the Marine rapper. And uh, if you want to hear us get deep, I mean on everything from the N-word to possible solutions, go to ConnectingVets.com, and uh, there you'll find that interview on the homepage. Now stick around and we'll hear about an incredible book you have to add to your summer reading list when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And our next guest is the author of the book High Treason. But you've heard him here before on this show talking about our silent war with China, the shadow wars with Russia, and how our war against terror is often fought against proxy militants that have nothing to do with the countries of Iraq or Afghanistan. Sean McFade is a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. And we love him because he's a veteran just like us, serving as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. And uh, always good to have you back. Sean McFate. welcome, my brother. Hey, thanks, Phil. It's great to be back. Now, as we said in the lead-in, you and I have talked at great length about... Um, Oh, the dark arts, the things that are in the world of the CIA and how we really need to be fighting Russian uh, interference in our democracy and how, uh, you know, the bot factories and the meme and the troll factories in Uzbekistan and China's gearing up to, like, fight us on all different kinds of levels. Um, And I've always loved your take on it because it's so real. What inspired you to write this book, High Treason?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I write both serious Nonfiction and thriller fiction, and you know, frankly, not many people do that. And I, I it's hard to do, is why I don't do it. And um, what I like about fiction is sometimes fiction can be a better truth teller than nonfiction. And so I use these novels first. They're just fun to read. It's a page turner. You know, it's a, it's a perfect summer read. Um, but they're also it paints a picture of this new type of warfare that we're talking about. Uh, in through the lens of, of a novel. And you can learn a lot that way. And so um, that's why I wanted to write novels. I, this is my third one. Um, and this one is set in Washington, D.C., which is, and we have Russians and others running around Washington in, in a clandestine kind of manner.
2: Now, let me just do the, like, sort of overview of the book here uh, that's from the press kit, and I won't give too much away, but uh, in the book High Treason, um, the vice president's motorcades hit in a vicious, expertly planned attack uh, that throws DC into chaos. The VP is killed, along with hundreds of people, and everyone assumes it's terrorists, but there's a young FBI agent, Jennifer Lynn, and she isn't that convinced. Now, who's really behind all this? Is it Islamic terrorists? Uh, Is it a new ploy by Putin to subvert American leadership? Well, halfway around the world, there's another one of your characters, which you've featured in other books, a military contractor named Tom Locke. And he also suspects that uh, there's some nefarious stuff going on here. Uh, Returning to D.C., Tom discovers that a civil war has secretly fractured the company he works for and a rogue unit kind of split off and is hungry for power and then the whole thing chases down the ending where Locke and the detective there have to find a way to put an end to all this violence and what could maybe bring our country to its knees. It's so rooted in potential real-world threats. Share with me kind of how your Mission Impossible background kind of lends itself to you writing about this.
1: Yeah, so, um, so my background is, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, um, and then I left and became basically a paramilitary contractor for the U.S. government, mostly in Africa. And I did stuff that the CIA used to do or sometimes do. I do stuff that special operations forces sometimes do. Um, but, you know, increasingly our government and other governments like Russia and others are outsourcing a lot of these super politically risky missions, right? Uh, and to some people that looks like mercenaries, to others it's private military contractors. I kind of think of myself as a paramilitary for the US government. Um, and I was writing about something I was I want to write a memoir about this really cool thing that we did. We helped prevent a genocide in Africa. So your listeners will remember like the Rwanda genocide. So we basically the intelligence community got good intel that there would be another There would be a terrorist group who want to do something that would trigger another genocide without getting into the details. And we stopped it. Right. Nobody knows about it. But I, I wanted to write that as a memoir. And my agent said, no, 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 Sean, if you do that, you'll be sued to death. Fictionalize it. So I was like, fictionalize it. Okay, fine. And so we did. And that became the Tom Locke series. And Tom Locke, who's like the protagonist He's basically me, had I stayed in that world, except he's a lot more badass than me, and he's a lot more damaged than me, <laughs> you know? And um, he, he uh, over the course, you know, I've written three. You don't have, this novel, High Treason, you can just stand alone. You don't have to have read any of their earlier novels. But basically, he's left that world behind, and he's basically a man in search of himself, trying to reclaim his soul. When he sees on TV, He's, he's hiding out someplace in another country. He says on TV there's this this huge terrorist event in um, Washington, D.C. And everybody thinks it's terror, think of like 9-11 meets the assassination of John F. Kennedy, mm. something like that. And he says, everybody thinks it's terrorists, but he recognizes like that, wait that's the company I used to work for. I think like, the is like Blackwater meets Goldman Sachs. It's like this big private military company But he's like, that is exactly the type of stuff they used to hire me to do in foreign countries, and now they just did it against our own government in Washington, WTF, right? Whiskey tango Foxtrot. And so he leaves hiding to go back in secret to D.C. uh, to try to unravel this before it gets too far. Um, And I don't want to give any spoilers away, but this is how other countries, I think, Will, help, will try to take us down. It's not a blitzkrieg into California or the East Coast. It's reaching in secretly and trying to whip up problems internally so that we internally collapse. And that's what Tom Locke is trying to, to undo, if you will, in this novel.
2: And I don't know what's cooler, Tom Locke's experiences through your books like uh Shadow Wars and whatnot, or whether your life experiences are that cool. Because I swear I'll still never forget our last interview. We were talking about uh uh, you know, the unseen warfare that's going on around the planet and you told me that story about you in a hotel room in Africa and you were wanting to meet with like a military general of some African country, which its name escapes me. I wanna say like Bamundi or whatever it was, but uh you'd said it was like late, late at night and you got a knock on your door and there were two guys in like mismatched
0: camo uniforms yeah, and
2: like right. dark sunglasses. And they're like, the general will see you now. And you're like, yeah, how'd nope, how they, yeah. <laughs> how, how they even know what room I was in?
4: How'd they even know
2: what freaking room um, I was in? So cool. Another cool character in this book is uh, a new one. I don't think she's been in your other books. Uh, a, right. a young FBI agent, Jennifer Lynn. What's her story?
1: Yeah, so Jennifer Lynn, she's like, um, she she's she's an FBI. She's young. Uh, she's really hardcore, but she doesn't like she doesn't like stupid bosses. I mean, we can all relate to that, right? Right. Nice. And so she doesn't <laughs> take authority very well. And so she, um, she she's in the FBI. She's in the FBI headquarters, and this happens. Uh, she's kind of marooned there because she kind of went rogue on a, on a mission against some Russian mafia in Brooklyn, and they sent her there as a desk jockey to cool her down. Uh, but she sees this thing on T- this terrorist event in DC on TV as well. She feels that she's like a mile or two away, but she her conclusion is it's not terrorists; it's Russia. It's like the Wagner Group. It's something. This she knows Russian. Uh, she's a Russia expert, and um, and then she sort of peels away roguishly from the FBI, and she and. Tom Walk didn't know with each other at the time. They're, 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 they're searching for the same thing, run into each other. And meanwhile, the FBI, the CIA, everybody's chasing them, thinking they are the ones. And the reason I like Jennifer Lynn is because, you know, so many of these, well, first of all, she's a character who wrote herself. Um, she's based on somebody I know, but then it came totally, you know, different. There's a lot of this, of the, you know, most characters in military thrillers, or thrillers in general the, the protagonist is usually a guy as either like a superhero um he's got like superhero abilities or he's like a boy scout and Tom Locke is neither right he's neither he's a, he's and then Jennifer Lynn most women in this this genre are either like trophies to be won or they're like guys with breasts essentially um, and Jennifer sure. Lynn is not cuz i have like many of your listeners know female warriors and they're not like some male version of female warriors. they're you know they're feminine and and they're warriors (laughs) and so jennifer loon's like that type of character and i like having strong female co-leads um in in the novels and my next novel might be a Locke and lynn novel
2: Mm, very cool very cool And I think we can all say that we enjoy those characters that have that sense of realism, like you described in Jennifer Lynn. Um, And uh, I married one, so uh, she (laughs) is... So did (laughs) I. She she, she is fierce. When when the contacts get beaten up sometimes, yes. Now stick around and we'll talk more with the author Sean McFate about how the real world looks a lot like the fiction in the book High Treason. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now we'll jump back into our conversation with Army veteran, former paramilitary government contractor and foreign policy expert Sean McFate. We're talking about his latest book, High Treason, an action thriller that opens with an explosion and an alliance between a CIA contractor and a young FBI agent to track down the people behind these deadly attacks before America falls into chaos. Let's talk a little bit about uh, D.C. Or rather, your research for this book and living in and around the D.C. area. And I always think of you as part of academia, you know, Georgetown University and think tanks and guys who know a lot about foreign countries and terrorists that are trying to kill us. And they usually inform government leaders through private meetings or reports or articles in The New York Times and The Washington Post. But it's a darker place than most of us would imagine and your life has kind of been involved in that. Tell me how, you know, beneath the jacket with the elbow patches there, Sean, um, describe the world where private contractors really do cross paths with the people in power.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I wasn't always a professor and I probably won't always be a professor. Uh, I've had career ADD um, (laughs) and I did some other things for a while. And I like novels because you can pull back the curtain and all this non—you know—I'm saying novel, pull back the curtain, all this stuff, and it's yeah. weirder and scarier than people think. So there's the, the halls of power or Washington are not Capitol Hill; they're not even the White House. It's K Street. K Street is is sort of like it's like. Um, It's a street not very far from the White House where all the lobbyists and law firms and these law firms are law firms that don't have like the the partners don't even have law degrees. You know what do they do? And they collect a lot of bank. There's a world of D.C. the seedy underbelly of D.C. where you you have private like military contractors who do, who like do soft things. Those deals are cut in DC bars. Those guys might be outside of, you know, uh, out Fort Bragg somewhere where they retired or someplace else, Dubai, but those deals are cut here. But it's also like private CIA, private intelligence. And that, I also worked in that world, and that's where the super weird stuff goes on. They do things, they, they, my favorite is called shaping operations, uh, both internationally and domestically, where you do things to shape a situation that favors your client's interests. And you do that through some cunning, underhanded ways. Um, and uh, so that is, and whether it's, in, whether it's opposition research between Democrat and Republican, but times 10, or you're like an oil company going into Nigeria and you want to swing an election there or whatever, um, it can be done. You can make it, you want to make a color revolution someplace, it can be done. Mm. And that all kind of happens in, the, the main places are D.C., New York, and London um in the english-speaking world and it is weird and i, I you see some of that in high treason. high treason's had of some of the k street stuff and it's a mixture between like they're like pr firms meet you know blackwater meet you know cia from the 1950s that's kind of what it's like
2: wow that's a trip and you know i can tell you firsthand experience i used to go to this place where my buddy was a bartender it was called the old evett grill in DC and it's a oak and you know brass kind of real traditional looking Irish pub slash restaurant and it dates back you know uh, towards the beginning of the century and my buddy told me he said keep your eye out and you'll see at some of the back tables occasionally some people that are moving and shaking and sure enough you'd look back and i remember looking back and seeing a corner table and there's a lot of laughing going on and newt gingrich was sitting in the corner with a couple people and when i read that um in a previous interview you'd done about the book and the dark underbelly of dc i can just visualize these like old men with white hair and women with pantsuits and then sitting at the booth with them is like a really in shape 55 year old guy with like an operator beard and maybe some gray hair and like, you know, seated perfectly so he can see the entire room while he's talking to his yeah. senator buddies well, or whatever. Like, that's the kind of stuff that's going down that nobody might even know is happening underneath their nose.
1: That's right. So, where those things well, usually what happens is there's, there's a cutout between the 50 year old, you know, paramilitary guy, whatever, and the Newt Gingrich guy. But that's right. So, when you see things announced in Washington on news of, you know, somebody says something at a press conference, the deal was done at a bar the night before or days before, and D.C. is an infamously boozy town, right? And the, some of the bars are things like Old Abbott's Grill, but also the Round Robin in the hotel or, or the Off the Record, the Haddams Hotel is, is a classic place, and there are these uh at least two social clubs in town. One's called the Cosmos Club, and one's called the Metropolitan Club. And that is also a place where you have off-the-record lunches with people. and these are sort of, these are like old elite institutions of D.C. where they say no business allowed, but that's precisely why they exist, right? <laughs> All that. Business, um, and these these really these drug deals are are being made over martinis. I mean, it's almost it's not quite Madman Martini level, but it's it's pretty close.
2: Wow, and that's crazy to think that like the fall of certain international governments or a proxy war being fought somewhere in the desert is being decided over a Cobb salad. Yeah, no, <laughs> Just, uh... I mean to be
1: clear, this is not how the U.S. government operates. That's all done in a skiff. But you know, when your private interests uh, at hand, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's amazing what a, what a good cab salad can turn the fate of a nation.
2: <laughs> what do you hope readers take away from High Treason?
1: Well, first of all, it's a fun book. It's really fast-paced. It's Tom Clancy. It's Dan Silva. It's that type of fun novel. But what what's different is that the universe that it, in, that it inhabits is like the stuff we've talked about before from the New Rules of War, a nonfiction book I did. Um, so rather than—it's not just, you know— you know, CI versus KGB in the suburbs of Washington. Um, it's, it's um, you have other you have other characters, other types of actors there. And so you you learn a bit about what is international relations like? It's sort of like Tom Clancy, but for their 20, early 21st century. Um, also, it's called High Treason because there's multiple levels of treason in the book. I don't wanna give any plot away, but one character, one type of treason, there's a the sellout treason, but it's also the treason of that the high-level leader or in the White House who thinks they're doing the right thing by doing a little wrong. And of course, they're, they're doing a great deal of wrong. So it's the, the treason of good intentions run amok.
2: Very cool. And something I always ask you in each and every interview, but... Um... Yeah. On some level, this is way more than fiction. This is really, really close to the heart of how it the is. world operates. Um, is stuff like this plausible that it could be going it down? Is.
1: It is. In fact, some of it is going down. Um, but yeah, it it is not just a work of pure imagination. I am not just a guy in Brooklyn in a bathrobe writing somethings I watched 24 the night before and was inspired. This is stuff I've seen done know about in it told through fiction, because again, sometimes fiction is a much more efficient truth teller than you know, nonfiction footnoting, yada, yada, yada. So a lot of this stuff is, these are scenarios, this is a scenario, or plural scenarios that are absolutely uh, plausible mm. and to some extent may be going on.
2: Outstanding. Well, I can't wait to dive into it. An excellent summer read. The book is called High Treason. The author is Army Veteran Sean McFate and former paramilitary contractor. Don't say mercenary. Don't say mercenary. <laughs> Sean, always good to have you on the show, my friend.
1: All right. Thanks, Phil. I love being your chef. Great.
0: Eye on Veterans Weekend has been
1: presented by. University of Maryland Global Campus. Choose from 90-plus programs and specializations to accelerate your military or civilian career and find out how our dedicated military and veteran advisors can help you navigate your benefits to save you time and money. University of
0: Maryland Global Campus. Find out how we're made for you. Visit umgc.edu. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.